Welcome back to another episode of the Next Level Minds podcast. For those of you that are tuning in for the first time, this is a podcast dedicated to those who want to reach a next level in their business, personal, or career life. Every other week, I'm blessed to sit down with a qualified individual, entrepreneur, content creator, or mover and shaker in their industry and walk through their story of how they have gotten from point A to point B and overcame various adversities along the way. I'm sitting down today with Austin Belsack, the founder of Cultivated Culture, which is an innovative career and consulting program where he teaches people how to use unconventional strategies to land jobs they love in today's market. Austin and I chat a lot about career development, about really applying for jobs in an innovative fashion, really just creating a lot of value, really just connecting with the appropriate people. He has some amazing methods that have helped thousands and thousands of people, myself being one of them. So I'm super excited that we're able to just sit down today and chat. I promise you, no matter where you are in your career, whether you're searching, whether you're completely content, or whether you're really looking for a career shift, this episode will add a ton of value. I'm telling you, his tips, techniques, and strategies are unlike I've ever heard before. So I'm really pumped y'all are tuning in today's episode. And as we like to say here at the Next Level Minds podcast, your mindset is your greatest weapon for the battle of success. Austin, thank you so much for uh, being on the Next Level Minds podcast. I know I owe you, obviously, as we were talking off air, a huge thank you for helping me find the career that I'm in now outside of the podcast and just really wanted to personally thank you for taking the time to sit down and do an interview with me. Yeah, of course, Chris. I'm, I'm happy to be here, man. And the kudos are, are all yours. You know, I can, I can throw the strategies out there, like I said, but people actually have to go take action on them. And that's, that's the tough part. So, you know, big ups to you for going out there, putting it into practice and landing a killer role. Mm. And I think that really goes back to, there's so much information out there in the world, but I think the true people are the ones who actually take action. Um, like it seems like you and I have both been fortunate to do. Definitely. Definitely. And that's the biggest thing, man, just getting started at the end of the day. For sure. So cultivated culture, obviously, you know it better than anyone out there. I really would love if you could just walk me through, you know, your story and who you are. And I know you used to live in Charlotte, actually, too. So I'd love if you could just kind of open up and really get the listeners out there to know some more about you. Yeah, for sure. So we can take it really all the way back to I think college is a, is a good place to start or maybe even high school. So I uh, in high school, I ended up taking a biology class my junior year and I absolutely loved it. And I, I set my sights on, on becoming a doctor, which I think, you know, we all do at some point in our lives and your parents, friends are like, Oh, you're going to be a doctor. That's amazing. And you get all the kudos and stuff and it, and it feels great. Um, and I was doing internships over the summer in medical centers and I was really doing everything I could to set myself up to go to a college that would enable me to be a doctor. So I went through the whole app process. I ended up at Wake Forest in North Carolina. It's important to note that I went to a boarding school. So we had to be in our rooms from eight to 10 during the, like doing study hall. We didn't, we didn't get out a whole lot is, is what I'm getting at. And so I get to college and there's no parents, there's no dorm soups. It's just 
us. You know, I remember the first night this car pulls up and we like hop in and we, we go to this party and, and it was a lot of fun. That is when I realized that I liked having fun a lot more than I liked studying. And so I immediately failed chemistry my first semester. I failed French the semester after that. I think I got out of freshman year with like a sub two GPA. I think I had like a one nine eight or something horrible. And I was sort of stuck in this position because there, there aren't many medical schools accepting students with a 198 GPA these days. So I could either, you know, really dig down and try to work my way back up to a, a halfway decent GPA and hope to get in somewhere. Um, you know, I could try to explore other avenues or I could just kind of coast and continue having fun. And I took the third option. So I sort of skated through my classes. I didn't put a whole lot of effort into studying. I graduated with a, a 2.58 GPA. So not so hot. I have actually, I've never had a above a 3.0 in my, my academic career. And so as we're kind of getting towards the end of college, I had to figure out what I wanted to do. You know, I've been kind of coasting along this whole time and my roommate's dad, who is an orthopedic surgeon, um, he worked with a medical device sales company that puts in, if, if anybody listening knows somebody who has a new hip or, or had a knee replacement or whatever, uh, we made the parts that, that actually go in the patient. So I got an internship there. My roommate's dad basically like popped it in my lap. And at the end of the summer, they offered me a job. And I just kind of said yes on the spot. I didn't think about cost of living. I didn't think about, um, you know, really anything. I was just happy to have an offer in hand because that meant I didn't need to worry about job searching or any of that. And so I went through senior year and I was laughing at all my friends who um, we were talking, like you said, off air about, you know, job searching as a full-time job. I was laughing at all my friends who treated it that way. You know, they were in the library studying not for classes, but for their interviews and they were, you know, tweaking their resumes and I was doing none of that. So by the time senior year or the end of senior year rolled around, graduation happened, I go out into the real world. I start this new job in Charlotte. I'm making like $35,000 a year. Um, I'm living in this apartment with a roommate and, uh, I have my car, which is a, a core part of my job. And so all of that is, is taking up the, the rent, the car payment insurance, that's all taking up like 70 to 80% of the money that I make. And I really have nothing else left to live on for the most part. So I quickly racked up, you know, 10 to $15,000 of credit card debt in the first couple of months, just trying to get by, honestly, not even like going out to the bar or whatever, but literally like buying groceries and like, you know, yeah. buying it, like, a, like having dinner with friends or something. And then on top of that, my job was just awful. So um, I found out that once I got, you know, once I was on the, the full salary and stuff, you know, the, the courtship period was over and we were, we were in it for real. And basically my role was to be a backup um, rep. And so the reps were in the operating room while the surgeries were happening and surgeries tend to start early in the day. They usually start around 6 a.m. So as a backup, you know, if somebody, I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, you know, where you're at now. And, and if somebody in Asheville calls the night before and says, oh, you know, my kid is sick and, and I have to stay home to take care of them, you know, can we get Austin out here? That means I'm up at 3.30 in the morning driving, you know, two and a half hours to Asheville to get there by six in time for surgeries. And I was doing that, you know, five, even six days a week because I'd sometimes leave on Sunday to go uh, travel somewhere to, to be there early Monday morning. And so, that was just awful. The The salary was awful. The job itself was awful. My manager was, you know, treated me like crap on top of all that. So I decided, you know, I need to make a change. And uh, I went to all the people that we normally go to for advice, right? I went to my parents. I went to my friends. I went to the career services center at Wake. Uh, I went to all these places and I, and I was like, all right, I want to make this career transition into tech. You know, how do I do it? 
And I got pretty much the same answer from all of them, which should have been a red flag in and of itself. All these people from, you know, so many different backgrounds and different areas in their career, giving the same exact advice was, you know, it should have been a red flag. It, it, it wasn't at the time, but I took their advice, which was, you know, tweak your resume, apply online, uh, rinse and repeat. It's a numbers game. So if you throw enough, you know, applications out there, one of them is bound to come back. And so for me, my goal was to, to honestly work at Google or work at Microsoft or something like that, which, you know, is kind of laughable given the whole story that I just shared, but that was my goal. And so I applied to them first and uh, obviously got rejected very, very quickly. Um, and then I kind of scaled back, but I ended up sending about 300 applications in the first um, three to four months or so. And I didn't get a single interview out of any of them. The only interviews I got were like the pity interviews that you get from, you know, family, friends or something who inevitably, inevitably would be like, oh, Austin, like you're a nice kid. We really like you. But, you know, we also have these candidates who have real job experience. So we have to go with them. And so I had to figure out a way to, you know, make this transition um, despite the fact that nothing was working. And so... I kind of took a step back and, and, and around that time, I ended up getting coffee with a Wake alum who uh, was working at Uber at the time. And I, I sort of asked him, you know, what, well, what's the, uh, what's the deal? What should I do here? And he, he basically told me something which I can d distill down into um, actually my wife distilled it down for me into the best piece of advice I've ever heard, which is to only take advice from people who already have what you want. Mm -hmm. And so I was here and I wanted, I was, you know, I had three months of, of professional experience in the healthcare field. I wanted a job in tech at Google and I was going and taking advice from like my dad, who's been an entrepreneur for 30 years, which is, he's been super successful, but he's not, hasn't done the same thing I want to do. Um, same with my mom, who has been in banking for 40 years and hadn't had to apply for a job outside of her company in forever, you know, career counselors who never had to go through the interview process or work at, at Google or in tech. Um, and my friends who were working in finance. So all these people who had not gone down the path that I wanted to go down. So I sat down and I said, um, I wrote out my dream job criteria. I was like, I want to be working at a top tech company. I want to be making six figures annually. I want to be living in a major city like a San Fran or a New York or whatever. And I want to be doing it before the age of 26. And so I took that list and I went out and I used LinkedIn to find people who already were living that life, who matched all those criteria, checked all the boxes. And I started talking to them and they basically told me uh, the common thing across all those conversations was two things. Um, one was that every single one of them had gotten a referral into their job some way. They didn't apply online. They had somebody pass their resume along. Next, um, a lot of them found a creative way to showcase their value. So I think one of the biggest uh, issues today is that you know, we rely on an eight and a half by 11 black and white sheet of paper called the resume to, you know, showcase our capabilities. And it just doesn't do a great job, even if you have traditional experience. But the worst part about it is that it only focuses on the past. And, um, you know, great salespeople, uh, you know, they, they focus on the other person, they focus on, you know, you instead of them. And the resume doesn't let you do that. And at the end of the day, the job search is really just a sales process where you're the product. And, we're not able to sell effectively um, using a resume. And so stepping out of that box and finding a way to illustrate your value, convey what you bring to the table on your own terms, in your own language, um, you know, a way that you're comfortable with was something that a lot of these people did. So I kind of took those two things and I created this system where I would basically go reach out to a bunch of people at companies I wanted to work for. I would build relationships with them. I would use that, um, you know, deliverable, which I call a value validation project. I'd use that deliverable to kind of show them what I could bring to the table. 
And that got me in the door eventually with Microsoft, Twitter, and Google. Um, so I accepted the offer with Microsoft. Uh, I, I started there back in October, 2015. So it's been a little over four years now, but I started cultivating culture about five months into that job when a lot of people came up to me and they were like, Hey, weren't you the kid with like a 2.58 GPA? Like, how are you working at Microsoft now? So, uh, after enough people asked me that I wrote the first post on the site, um, which you alluded to how to get a job anywhere with no connections. And that really got a great response from people who were feeling the same things that I felt. And the rest is, is really history, um, at this point. Yeah. That's a, that's an incredible story. And I feel like just the way you pictured it, um, I felt myself honestly just walking through your story right there. So <laughs> thanks for that, that full rundown, especially for all the listeners out there who probably had sure. a chance to speak with you. So backing up a little bit, I know you mentioned that you had thoughts of becoming a doctor, right? Did, uh, did you have any pressure from like outside sources that you just naturally, when you got to college, you're like, hey, I'm going to do this because I feel pressured to, or was it your decision all, all the way across the board? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing for, for me was that you know, I guess I never really ran into it because I d it didn't cross my mind. But I know for a fact that if I if I said I wanted to be like an English major, you know, my, I would have gotten flack from my parents, and I think that they would have not been happy or potentially like made me pay my own way or, or something along those lines. Like they were happy I was a biology major because they knew that you know there were careers in STEM fields, and I think yeah. they were even happier that. I wanted to be a doctor until that kind of went out the window. But I think that they, they even at that point still thought that, you know, the STEM major would do something. Um, but a hundred percent, you know, if, if, if I showed up and I was like, you know, I want to major in sociology, I think my parents would have kind of blown a gasket. And I think a lot of students deal with, that. I know it's a lot, a lot of students deal with that because I talk to them every day. Um, and that's, that's crazy to me because I think at the end of the day, I just read, I think Gallup did a study and they found that something like 70 to 80% of people work in jobs that aren't related to their field of study in college. And so, you know, you're putting in all this time into, you know, college isn't easy. You have to bust your butt, uh, yeah. but you may as well, like really enjoy what you're doing while you're busting your butt. So my advice to people is always, you know, pick a major that you're interested in. Don't necessarily worry about the job prospects, you know, definitely pay attention to the market and what's out there. And you know, be building skills and stuff. But at the end of the day, don't worry too much about, you know, oh, this job has the highest starting salary. Cause I, I promise you the people with the highest starting salaries don't always end up with the highest eventual salaries or earning potential. Um, and so you, you should really be doing something that interests you. Yeah. And I feel like how you just mentioned the whole starting salary ordeal, I feel like, you know, their first two years out of college, unfortunately, I think it's a huge comparison game. You're like, oh, mm -hmm. you know, Jeff makes, you know, 85 grand and I make this much and he makes this much, you know, I think it's kind of like a why aren't I there. Um, and I know in one of your articles, you mentioned uh, at one point, I, forgive me if I quote this wrong, but I think you mentioned, you know, I could barely afford to eat ramen for breakfast, 1500 mm -hmm. miles in your car a week, you know, thousands of dollars of credit card debt. And obviously for anybody out there, no matter how old they are, that is a, a pretty bad situation. So, you know, what was your mindset through that process? Because I know it sounded like you had friends in finance and friends in tech. I mean, were you just like, just pissed off all the time? Or did you really <laughs> get through that, you know? For sure. Uh, so I think that it was actually a really critical piece of, you know, getting to where I am today. And uh, one, of, one of the people that I, I like to follow on LinkedIn, his name's Justin Welsh. Um, he's he's a, a sales guy and he had a great post where he talked about, um, he basically said, if you're optimizing for revenue in your 20s, you're, you're doing it wrong. And I think that's, you know, incredibly well put because 
sort of like we talked about, you know, if, if you look at the salary scale and, and the, the length of, you know, your career, there, there's a line that goes up into the right in the sense that as you get deeper into your career, you make a lot more money. And so just because you start out at 100,000 or 150,000 doesn't mean that your your earning potential is proportional to other careers where you may start out at, you know, for example, in sales where you may be in an SDR and you're making 30K a year, 20K a year, and then once you become a full-fledged salesperson, though, you start closing deals and getting commission, maybe you're making four fifty a year um, or, or even in the millions. You know, it really isn't about, you know, the number that you get out of college. Now, did I know that when I came out of college? Absolutely not. Was it frustrating? Totally. But I think the best part about it was that I, I sort of had to learn early that, um, you know, a lot of people at the end of the day won't understand where you're going. You know, I've, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I've always wanted to have my own business. And, uh, you know, my friends were, they, they are definitely supportive of my business, but they also, you know, they'll make fun of me from time to time. And I think at the end of the day, if you ask them, like, what does Austin do at Cultivated Culture? All of them would tell you, I have no freaking clue. And so a lot of people they don't understand where you want to go. And you, in order to get to where you want to go, you really have to accept that. And you, you, you can't wait for other people to give you permission. You know, if you want to do something, you have to give yourself permission. You just have to really make a bet on yourself that what you're doing now is, is going to, you know, net out in the long run. And it's going to be far, far more worth it than sticking to whatever societal norms are, are you, you don't agree with. And if, if you think, if you're living your life, at your nine to five and you love your job and you're happy with what you have, that is awesome. Like people dream about that. So in no way am I saying that being an entrepreneur is for everybody or, you know, a certain path is for everybody. It's really about understanding that if you're feeling resistance, if you're feeling, you know, friction or unhappiness because of the way things are set up, um, don't let people telling you, don't let people tell you that that's the way it has to be, you know, go figure out what's right for you. And then just nod your head and, and really just do whatever you were going to do anyways, working towards that goal that's eventually going to make you happy. Yeah, for sure. How do you think people can, you know, put the horse blinders on and not value people's opinions so much? Because I think that holds, especially younger people back and actually making that jump or leaving the nine to five or even taking that job that they may get, you know, some people making fun of them because of that. So how can you really put those blinders on? For sure. I think there's two things that really help with that. So one is having a, a clear path and a clear goal. I think one of the hardest things to deal with in a career, and, and especially uh, as a new grad or somebody earlier on in their careers, is not knowing what you want to do. Uh, there's so many job titles out there. There's so many fields. And a lot of people, uh, you know, we also hear in the media and in articles and stuff, you know, passion, do what you're passionate about, do what you love. But the problem is I always make the analogy, like dipping your Wendy's fries in, in a frosty, you know, I've, I've personally never tried it, but I know a lot of people love it, but that's like a crazy combo. And like, nobody would have known that that combo was great unless they tried it. And it's the same thing with anything in your career. If, if you think that passion is a bolt of lightning that's just going to like hit you in the middle of the night and you're going to be like oh man i was meant to create like amazing user experiences or amazing user interfaces like that's never going to happen if you've never actually tried that so you really need to get out there and start um just doing what i call mini pilots like spending 30 days learning something if you're interested in marketing take a course like go start a project if you're interested in coding like go spend 30 days learning to code and if you hate it at the end of the 30 days you have full permission to drop it and move on but doing that will kind of allow you to dial into what you want to do. And once you know what you want to do, it's a lot easier to put those blinders on because you know, like you can say, you can point to something and say, I'm working towards that goal. And I know what I'm doing is getting me closer. So I don't really care what you other people have to think. I think we become really susceptible when, when we feel like, 
people are telling us we're not following the norms and we don't have that North star because then we're really sort of in limbo and we're not sure what to do. Uh, the second thing is, uh, you know, not easy to hear, but really it's just getting in like reps of rejection. So for me, like I would, I would go to the bar and not be able to buy like a round of drinks or I put it on my credit card and I know that I would like be going into more debt. And like, I knew I didn't want that feeling anymore, or I would have to say no to stuff. And like at the beginning when we're younger, like, you know, we all say and do dumb stuff that we don't mean like fr friends can be mean sometimes. And that like my friends were like pretty ruthless sometimes about like, Oh, you're not able to like come out with us or do this, that, and the other thing, or spend a hundred bucks on a round of golf or whatever it is. And eventually, you know, that, that really affected me at the beginning, but eventually after the nth time I was like, whatever, I'll just own it. Like, I don't care anymore. These are my buddies. Like we have a good time at the end of the day. Like they're just giving me a hard time because we're friends. And so as soon as I started owning it and being like, yeah, I can't, but like, here's something else we can do or whatever, just like playing into the joke and, and just being confident about it, their attitude towards me changed. And I've seen that continuously throughout my career. Um, when I started my business and it was a random website that nobody had ever heard of, when I went up to people and I was like, well, I have a little blog or something, people would be like, oh, here we go again, roll your eyes. But if I had a confident narrative or a confident you know, statement about it, people reacted very differently. And so a lot of it is about just having that confidence to, to say, yep, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm passionate about. This is what I'm going to make happen. Um, you know, here's why if you're interested. But other than that, you know, we can talk about something else if you want. Um, but just being confident is, is such a big factor in, you know, like not letting other people's opinions and those norms kind of get to you and, and steer you off course. Yeah, I totally agree with the whole confidence thing, especially the full ownership, because I feel like the more ownership you have of your product, your service, your career, then it the less cracks people have to slip through to actually make fun of you of the process because you're so strong in it. And then at, at, at the main point, they feel bad because they're like, wow, this guy really believes in this. I can't I feel bad. Of him. You know, I might as well support him. It's just, I think it's funny because it's so natural. For sure. Have you, have you seen 8 Mile? I have. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, the final rap battle where like Eminem comes out and he just says all the stuff that they have to say about him. It's kind of like that, right? He just shows up on stage and he, he, before he was getting like, he was trying to outsmart people. He was trying to like skirt around the facts. And then when he showed up and was like, I'm just going to own it. And just was like, yeah, I live in a trailer park with my mom. Like tell these people something they don't know about me. Like the other guy has nothing to say. And everybody's like in the, in the, in the crowd going wild. And like, that is, I think the funniest, but perfect. And like most perfect analogy to exactly what we're talking about in terms of not knowing where you want to go or having a, a dream or a goal. That's a bit different than everybody else's. If you just own it, like that's how you're going to show up. Yeah. I, I remember when I first started my podcast, I mean, I've only been doing it for about eight months, but I just had $20 mics that go into your phone and uh, a guest came over to record. He's like, this is your microphone? <laughs> Full ownership. Like, yep, it is. Let's get started. He's like, yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. And it, eight months is great. Not, I mean, most people give up in a few weeks. Kudos to you, man. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, shout out to my audio engineer, Matt Drozd, who got me this microphone right here. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> um, so with college, I know it's a big topic right now. Do you think that college is 100% necessary or what's your take on that? Yeah. So this is a really interesting one. And my opinion has really changed wildly from, uh, you know, I graduated and I went through that whole process and I was like, college is worthless. Like you don't need it, blah, blah, blah. I think that there's a, a happy medium. So what, what I would say is that college isn't for everybody. So what I really valued about college is that it, 
gave me a lot of uh, experience and intelligence on the social side. And what I mean by social side is not just like meeting people and stuff, but like living on your own and, you know, having to, uh, you know, pay rent for an apartment off campus and like figure out how to cook for yourself and like, you know, feed yourself when you, when you don't have the dining hall. Um, but also, you know, how do you connect with people who are from a different background, who, who look at the world differently, who have different views? Uh, all that stuff was amazing. And then it also taught me how to, you know, once you get into college, you start thinking about the real world people, people do, most people care about their job. Uh, and so you have to figure out like, okay, you know, who am I going to connect with? Who am I going to, who am I going to build my network, uh, you know, with for when I graduate, who, who am I going to stick with? And, um, that, that's a really, really valuable thing, but that's a really expensive thing as well with the way the system is set up. It's absolutely egregious, the amount of money that colleges charge today. And the fact that like the growth versus inflation, like is it's maddening. And it's like, it's, it's a, it's a hot topic. So anyways, what I'll say is that, you know, the great part about today, you kind of mentioned it earlier in the podcast, but there's so much information out there that's available for free. And now there are these schools that are kind of geared towards, um, you know, actual functional experience. Uh, and so something like a, a coding bootcamp or a data science bootcamp, there's more and more of these, um, you know, alternative education platforms popping up that are le very legitimate, like companies are hiring people out of those platforms. And so what I'd say is that, you know, college is a, is a luxury that if you can afford to do it, it is absolutely worth it. I would say that, you know, the, the pitfall is that a degree won't, just get you in the door anymore. The same way that, you know, in the seventies, eighties, you know, when people started going to college, a degree meant you, you could always get a job. You could always get an interview. You would always be considered, but now like anything else, when it, you know, becomes universal, that's not necessarily the case. And so what you have to understand is that colleges right now, 90% of them do not provide, you know, adequate career counseling services. They simply don't teach up-to-date methods that work. And so you have to put in the extra work. You're still paying all the money, but you also have to understand that you need to go build the skills. You need to go um, put in the work to make it happen for yourself and your career. Um, and if you can't afford to do that, that's totally fine. You can still have a viable or still get a viable education that leads to a career through a boot camp or even through your own learning. I know a lot of people, two of the people that I work with on, on my sales team at Microsoft don't have a college degree. Mm -hmm. And they really just went out there and they said, okay, this is the real world. This is what people and employers look for. Let me go build skills that match that. And, and they pushed and they sold themselves and they got in the door. So it's absolutely possible to do it across the spectrum. Um, but to answer your original question, I would say that, you know, college is definitely a luxury these days. There's different ways to do it. I think we're going to see more of those alternative education platforms um, coming up if nothing changes about the, the I guess, the college tuition um, that, that, we, that we see today. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point. And I think also with college is it's good not only to get a, a degree in your field, if you're going to go that route, but I think getting as involved as you can in you know, different organizations to gain leadership. Cause I think I, I at least try to do a good job of that when I was at Clemson and I, it has paid some dividends down the road when it came to actually acquiring jobs. And I think yeah. what's funny too, with uh, colleges is I've had two internships and two jobs since I've well, two intern internships in school and two jobs since I've been out. And none of them have asked for a proof of a degree, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. And I've yep. a lot of other people and they're like, yeah, I actually never had to give that proof anyway. So <laughs> I just think it's kind of funny at the end of the day. 
Yeah, you can literally walk in and, and say you have one, right? Um, but I, I, I like your point about the project. So, I mean, I talk to so many people who, who are like, want to start a side hustle, but they say they don't have time. And I look back on my college self and I remember days where I, where I would like sit on the couch with my friends and play Call of Duty for eight hours. Like I had lots of time, even though I thought I didn't in the moment. And so one of the biggest regrets that I personally have is not doing, not getting involved in more projects that I was interested in. So I actually did uh, summer of my junior year while I was at the internship for the job I talked about before I created a, a music blog. So this was um, back when, when I was in school. Um, and uh, wh- when did you graduate? If you don't mind me asking. Yeah, May 18. 18? 18. Yeah. Oh, sweet. Okay. Um, all right. So I was 13. And back then, like these music blogs and like the, the like electronic music scene or whatever was like getting really big. And I was like, Whoa, this is cool. I'm a big music person. And so I was like, this is really cool. Maybe I could start my own music blog. And so I did, and I built the site on WordPress and I like set it all up and I did all the design myself. And I think it got like 500 visitors, like all time. But when it came time in the real world for me to set up my cultivated culture website or any of the other websites for projects I wanted to do, I knew how to do it already because I basically just went and said, hey, let me try this out in college when I had time, when, when there was really no risk of, you know, if I failed, there weren't real consequences. And so I always encourage and I wish more college students would just say, hey, let me, I have this idea for an app, let me go try to build it. Or like, I have this idea for a website, let me go try to do it. And I always hate when people are, when especially parents do this a lot or like older people always tell students they're like, but somebody already did that. And like, that's not really the point. The point is like, if, so, if, if one of these students has an idea, like push them to do it. Cause even if it's already been done, even if it fails by like the measure of like, it didn't get funded or it didn't make millions of dollars or any money, like they gain so much experience. That's going to be so helpful for any job they want to go into any career that they want to go into. Yeah. And I think, that's so true because you learn that real world experience. And then at the end of the day, it vastly separates yourself apart because uh, if you look at a hundred kids, probably 90 of them graduated. We're like, Oh, I spent college playing Fortnite and drinking beer, which is you know, <laughs> college. You're supposed to relax sometimes, but yep, then, yeah. you know, the 10% that's like, Hey, this is a business that I tried to build and it failed. Or this is even a business that I have right now that I'm scaling. Obviously that's going to separate you apart a lot. For sure. Really, really think I believe in that. So I want to ask one more question revolved kind of more around mindset. And then I'd love to get into a little Q&A revolved more around career with some questions that actually were emailed to me by some of my listeners. Sweet. Um, So if you could go back to the day after graduation with, you know, a lot of the material that you know now with building your company, with doing all your research, I mean, what would you tell yourself sitting there with the diploma? Oh man, I would say, uh, if I could do anything, I would probably say, you know, don't do this job instead, you know, one go travel and, and live a little bit. Um, I think that I was in such a rush to start my career and, and like be successful. Uh, I actually didn't take an international trip until I got my job at Microsoft and then was there for a year in 2016. The last international took trip I took before that was in like 2004 or something or 2006. So it had been like over 10 years. Um, and I think that's, you know, such a bummer. Travel is, is such an awesome thing. So I would I'd probably say that. And then what I would follow up with is, um, you know, if, if you're, you're kind of pigeonholed in this job and it's going to suck and you don't have a lot of skills. So re- what that really means is you are a blank canvas. So go figure out what the perfect candidate looks like for whatever role you want to be a part of or get into and start building those skills. And that's exactly what I ended up doing to 
break into digital marketing, I, I spent my nights and weekends teaching myself digital marketing, getting certified. Um, I actually used, I started a website and I kind of, you know, tested some ideas and methods and I sort of built some real world experience. And then I went and freelanced my services. Mm. And that was the experience I used to eventually get into the digital marketing world. Um, but still through the referrals and the value validation project we talked about before. But I would tell myself that, you know, at the end of the day, you're in this situation, you're going to hate this job, you know, you don't want to do it. Just take a step back, build the skills that you need, believe in yourself, take a bet on yourself. And, you know, if I could say anything now, I would say, you know, you, you really don't have a lot to lose at this point, even though it feels like you do. Yeah. Why do you think people, it reminds me of a follow-up, why do you think people are so rushed to just, you know, oh, I want to be a millionaire by 35, or I, I can't, I can't do this. I can't do that. I why do you think people are so rushed nowadays? Because I get, I feel rushed all the time too, but I'm trying yeah. to get better at it. This is something that my my wife gives me a really hard time for, and I'm super guilty of. I am like, my head is always in tomorrow or a year from now or five years from now, every every day, all day. And, and I am the same way. I move super quickly and I get like, you know, I'm always rushing through stuff to get back to like doing that, that blog post or whatever. And I, I definitely need to slow down, but I think it's really because, um, you know, it's not easy to be successful. Like there's, if it was easy, everybody would be successful. And I know that's cliched, but it's true. And so the work that you have to put in to be successful sucks, honestly, most of it. And so you kind of have to slog through it and until you find the stuff that you like, and then you make a bit of money and then you can hire an audio engineer. So you don't have to edit the podcast yourself. Or for me, I can hire somebody to help me do this, that, or the other thing with my site. And I don't have to do it myself. And slowly you kind of work your way up the ladder, but I think people are in a rush to get to like the, the dream life simply because like everything that comes with it, like you're, you have fewer problems. You don't have to do as much work. You have a lot of money. Like these are all things that, you know, people are in the opposite situation typically when they're starting out. And so they want to push, 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 push to get there as quickly as possible. And it's hard to blame them, um, especially because I, I have no room to speak here. I'm one of those people. But I also recognize that, like, you know, we only get so many days in our lives and, and you know, stopping and smelling the flowers, for lack of a better word, is really important, too. I, again, am guilty of not doing that as nearly as often as I should have. I try to be better about it every day. Um, but I, I really empathize with the people who, who feel that way. Um, like you mentioned. Yeah, I'm on the same exact boat. I'm try, trying to get better each and every day at it, but you know, I I've started leaving my phone behind if I go to dinner with my girlfriend or lunch. <laughs> yeah, dude, I have to, I have to send you an article. Uh, there, there's a, there's a great article. And for people listening to, I, I was spending upwards of like seven hours on my phone every day and, uh, which was way too much. And I read this article called how, how to, um, something like how to organize or how to make your iPhone work for you instead of against you. And this dude has like so many great tips and um, we're, we're on the podcast here, but I'll show you my home screen now is like one row of apps on the top and one row on the bottom. And my nice. screen time is like under two hours now on average. And it's been a game changer. I've been like, I've had so much more mental space and I've been able to like enjoy moments a lot more than rather than being buried in my phone. So I'll, I'll send it to you. I don't mean to digress. But. No, definitely send that. Cause I want to put it in the show notes because I mean, so many people are, are addicted to their phones and you know, you don't even realize it sometimes. So definitely, definitely send that over. <clears throat> um, so diving into more of the career stuff, like a lot of these questions were sent to me and actually questions that I'm pretty curious about as well. Um, Sweet. So with cultivative culture, obviously it, kind of breaks the whole norm of the traditional job application process. Um, I would love if you could kind of outline just on your research a little bit more about 
just what's going on in the traditional job application market. You know, you mentioned you applied to 300 companies and or did 300 applications never received anything back. So like how many applications get lost? What's the chances of them getting seen? Can you kind of like break down some of those numbers from that traditional process? Yeah, for sure. Um, the, the numbers are crazy. So right now the average role gets about 350 resumes. And when we say average role, we're talking, um, you know, everybody from the, the restaurant on the corner of the street from you or, or I all the way up to Google who in 2018, they got 50,000 resumes a week. So it's wild a week. So like millions and millions uh, every single year. And so that 350, it, it encapsulates a lot of companies. And as we go up in company caliber to the, the companies, the brand names that people truly want to work for, that, that number increases. But even with that three, 350 number, um, companies bring in typically around four to six people for an interview. Um, the rest gets screened out by this, this piece of software called an applicant tracking system. So companies, essentially what happened was companies wanted, a, they, they weren't getting enough applicants and they wanted a way to get more. So they created online applications and now they've made it so easy to apply that like they're getting millions and millions of resumes that are not relevant to their job postings or don't make sense. And so they needed a way to filter through them. So they created this piece of software that's essentially scanning your resume for keywords and experience and phrases and things like that. And essentially at the end of the day, a robot is deciding whether you're qualified or not, which sucks. And the robots do not do a great job of, of making accurate decisions, but what they do do is pick out four to six people to come in for an interview. And so when you think of, you know, 350 applications, four to six people come in for an interview, you have less than a 2% chance of, of getting that job if you apply online. And those four to six people are, are folks that come from, you know, they check the boxes, they, they, they got through the scanner. If you're coming from a non-traditional background or you're making a career change or whatever, it's so hard to get in the door that way simply because your resume just doesn't match up for what the, the robot is looking for or what the recruiter is looking for. And so you just get tossed aside. So th th those numbers are wild. But then if we flip, uh, flip to the other side and we look at where most hires come from, um, anywhere from the most conservative estimate is around 40%. Uh, higher, end have, higher end estimates have it around 80% of jobs come through referral or word of mouth. Mm -hmm. So even with the 40% low estimate, that same survey showed that that was the biggest channel by far and it was more than the next two channels combined. So even with a conservative estimate, most of the jobs out there are being filled via referral or word of mouth. And so instead of applying online, if we can find a way to get that referral, have a conversation with a human being, build a relationship, we can get in the door without having to rely on a resume. We can circumvent that applicant tracking system, that robot that's scanning our resume. And we can really you know, have a human conversation and, and showcase our value in, in a way that's comfortable to us. Yeah. That's, uh, that's some scary numbers. Yeah, for sure. And so connecting with those people, is that's via LinkedIn, correct? Or? Yeah, so there's a bunch of ways to do it. The easiest way to find them is to just, if you know your target job title that you're going after, if you punch in that job title to LinkedIn, or maybe uh, the title of somebody who would be one level up above that, um, your your goal is to basically find, you know, you refine it down to a company, you refine it down to a geo. If you know, like the role is posted in, um, you know, Palo Alto, you, you probably want to select Palo Alto in the filters. That's basically going to give you a list of all the people who are, like we said, you know, they're the people who are already living the life that you're hoping to live. They're already in the role you want to get. Um, so taking advice from them is the best advice you can get. So then um, 
you, you can, that's your whole lead list right there. And what you're going to do is click on people's profiles and see who would be a good person to reach out to who has like a piece of information you can leverage who might be close to the hiring team. Um, and then I always recommend reaching out via email over LinkedIn. You can use LinkedIn as a backup, but email just gets better end to end response rates. So you can, uh, you can find anybody's email address super easily. There's this tool called mailscoop.io. And um, MailScoop will let you plug in their first and last name, you plug in their company's uh, website, and then it, it does a search and it spits out their email address or it makes a guess. Um, and then it'll actually tell you how to verify that email. So it's, it's super handy, it's free, um, but you can find pretty much anybody's corporate email with that. And then I put them all into an Excel sheet and then I just start blasting out emails. Yeah, and so these are some of the tips that you, you listed in those articles that we talked a little bit off air that, that you wrote about, correct? Yeah. One of them was the how to get a job anywhere with no connection. Um, that was one of the first ones I've read. And that kind of goes back to those tips with the cold LinkedIn connections, right? And then actually reaching out with an email. And so what do those steps look like? Let's say that somebody wants to go into project management for Google. What it would it be connecting with the top 15 project managers in Palo Alto, or can you kind of walk through that real quick? Yeah, for sure. So I would, in that situation, I, I would go for project managers at Google. And so what I would look at is the role and I would look at where it's posted and I would look at if it's, you know, assigned to a specific vertical or if it's assigned to a specific team. And then I would go use LinkedIn to try and find people who are uh, either working on that team already in some capacity who are managing that team in some capacity. And if I can't find either of those, then I'll just go look for project managers in that same office. And then I'm going to send them an email. But the trick is with the email, a lot of people will hear me say this and then they just send a resume and they're like, Hey, you know, you work on this team. Here's my resume. And that's the worst way to approach it. Um, because you're, you're a stranger, you're emailing this person. They've never heard of you. And you're just like dumping a resume in their lab. And People don't like that. So what you want to do instead is make the outreach about the other person. So if you, again, if you can scan through their LinkedIn profile and find something interesting about their career, one thing I love to latch onto is, is the non-traditional background. Um, so if you can find somebody who maybe made it to Google from a different industry or made it into project management from a different, um, you know, uh, like discipline or, or job title, that's a great thing to bring up. And then if you make the conversation about the other person, if you build them up and say, hey, you know, I noticed, you know, if you were emailing me, you could say, hey, Austin, I, I was looking for people who made the jump into tech from a non-traditional background. I saw that you were in healthcare and you now work at Microsoft. Like, I imagine that couldn't have been easy. I'd love to hear more about your journey. I'd love to hear more about, you know, some of the obstacles you faced. If you have a few minutes to chat, I'd be really grateful. That's not asking for a job. That's not saying I want a job. That's making pretty much everything about me. And I can't tell you how many people send me that exact email uh, now, but normally, you know, back when I was first, first getting them, that would make me feel really good because people are like, Oh, I, I would say, Oh, this person did their research. They understand my story. They've, they've done their due diligence. Like, yeah, of course I'll help this person. And that's exactly how the project manager at Google is going to feel. Um, you'd be surprised. Even people at Google, you know, they don't always feel the recognition, you know, that they feel like they deserve. And if you show up and you're like, I recognize that this path that you've had is great or these things that you've done are impressive. People really respond to that. And so if, if that's how you tee up these emails, that outreach, you're going to be in really, really good shape. Yeah. I like that. And I like that you're putting more of the ball in their court rather than saying me, 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 here's my resume and cover letter. Good luck. Totally. <laughs> I like that. I like that method a lot. That's funny that you get all those emails now. <laughs> it's like copy paste verbatim. It's really funny. Yeah, for sure. I'll make sure to put some of those articles. If you want to send me offline, some of the top ones that, that you think people would find value from, I can put that in the, uh, in the show notes as well. Um, sure. 
because I've read a lot of them. So with interview tips real quick, what would you say are three main in-person interview tips? Um, obviously, I know we've talked about confidence a lot, but I feel like sometimes people think that you just need confidence. I mean, what would you say to that? Yeah. So even for in-person interviews, no matter what interviews, the, the, it, the interview success is 80% in the preparation. And I think people don't realize that, especially for a phone screen. I think a lot of people are like, oh, it's just a phone screen. You know, I'll, I'll really prepare once I get to the, the real interview or whatever. And at the end of the day, especially when you're looking at these highly sought after jobs and companies, like if you really want this job, and especially if you don't, if you don't want to be in a position where you're just settling for a job because a company offered it to you, like you need to take every single one seriously. And so the, the best interview preparation begins well before the interview. So the great part about interviews these days is that most of them follow a pretty similar format. You're going to have, you know, sometimes you have technical questions, sometimes you have specific case study questions, but for the most part, you're going to get like, tell me about yourself or why do you want to work here? Or tell me about a time you failed. There are these core basic questions that um, are pretty universal. And so if you sit down and you write out your answers to those questions and prepare them ahead of time, you're going to be in really good shape. So the, the way that I recommend doing that is one, um, I have a list of questions in that article. We talked about how to get a job anywhere with no connections, but if you just write out those core questions and you do a brain dump, you just kind of like put stream of consciousness words, to the paper, what your answer would be, and then leave it for a day. Like do that for all the, all the questions, leave it for 24 hours, come back the next day, and then refine and rehearse your answers. So go through, like, tweak the text, you know, change your story, revise it, then rehearse it. If you rinse and repeat that for five days, uh, your answers are going to be in a really, really good place. Uh, but you're also going to put yourself in a great place from a memory perspective. Um, and so what you can do then, at that point, you can basically come back and rehearse your answers once a week or once every two weeks. And you'll be able to recall them really, really well. And so what that does is a couple of things. One's it, one, it forces you to come up with examples. And so when you have a couple of different examples for a couple of different questions, what you'll find is that no matter what interview you walk in, like those questions take many different forms. And so somebody may say, like, tell me about a time that you struggled instead of a time you failed, but you could still potentially use that example from failure for the struggle answer. So you'll find that a lot of these can be pivoted. And so what that means is if you prepare these ahead of time, you can walk into like 90% of interviews and do pretty well with no other preparation. And so the great part about that is when, when that interview does come up, now you don't have to start from scratch coming up with your answers. You've already done that. So you can really focus in on the company specific questions, the company specific, um, you know, research and, and things like that. So that is the biggest thing. Um, it, the, the preparation ahead of time in terms of the interview answers. The other thing is researching the company. I think a lot of people, they just show up and they read a mission statement or they read the company's website and they Google the company name or look at it in the news. And that's all great, but that's like the tip of the iceberg. So what you really want to do here, what the company is looking for is somebody who understands their problems, their challenges, their goals, and can speak directly to those challenges or goals. So what I recommend doing is just doing a deeper research. A couple of my favorite ways are listening to earnings calls if it's a public company. Um, another is a site called seekingalpha.com. So they have a great, they're, they're like a financial blog, um, but they also allow financial analysts to weigh in with, with um, uh, basically opinion pieces. So you can read the concrete uh, objective news, but then you can also read a bunch of different opinions on it. And you can see why Tesla is going to skyrocket to the moon or why it's going to tank and go out of business. And you learn about the talking points that are out there and the conversations that are being had. And then finally, the last thing I really like is um, listening to interviews with executives um, or, or people at the company. So podcasts, you know, keynotes, things like that. If you get somebody talking about their product for 40 to 60 minutes or something, you're going to pick up some really good information. You're going to hear the language they use. You can mirror it. 
But basically that's going to get you to a point where you can show up to the interview and you can give a strong answer that you've already memorized, but you can also tie it into the needs that you know the company has. Um, you have an understanding of why they're hiring for the role. And when you when you combine those two things, that makes for a really, really strong answer that um, you know most most people aren't delivering in interviews. Yeah, that's a... Uh... I really think the earnings call really does separate yourself apart too. Um, I remember doing that on one of my interviews a couple of years ago and they were like, uh, you listen to our earnings calls. <laughs> uh, I brought up three points and I was, they were just so amazed and they're like, yeah. Yeah, one of them, they didn't know the answer to. They were like, yeah, let us uh, get back to you on that. That's a really nice, nice. That's awesome. And I think, uh, that's just one of the things that I think in the traditional job market, just normal application process. I feel like people are, don't even sometimes know what an earnings call is. So I think mm-hmm. just doing that non-traditional method, you learn about seeking alpha earnings calls, you know, look at, or Owler. I know they're another good one that does a lot of tech companies. Um, awesome. You know, I think breaking the non-traditional route again, you get all that information. Totally. Um, I know one thing uh, I got interview tip one time of in-person interviews. There's, I said, how should I conduct myself? And my mentor was like, you, you remember when you first met your girlfriend's dad? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, you, you got to play cool, but you also got to show that you're well respected. So, <laughs> There's just those two lines that worked really well for me. I love it. I love it. That's that's like the perfect way to frame it up. Yeah, because you don't want to be like you know stick in the mud, but you also don't want to be that laid back kid on the beach. So you got to kind of right. that uh, middle ground. Um, <laughs> so I know you've had some articles out there of just describing salary negotiation and you know your stance on that. I know some people are kind of terrified to do that so what's your stance on salary negotiation and if your stance is positive how can you negotiate a higher salary for sure yeah so negotiations a, a critical part of the process i mean at the end of the day uh you know one of the major reasons we work is is money right money solves a lot of problems and, and helps us do things that we want to do um it can eventually create freedom and so our goal should be to make more money you should treat yourself like a business right you know that's the whole goal of the business and hiring you their goal is to make more money you should be trying to do the same thing and the biggest points in your life where you can make more money unless you're starting a business are when you get a new job so typically when you look at an internal raise um the average these days is like three to five percent um if you're moving within the same company but if you make the jump to another company the average salary increase is closer to 15 to 20 percent and that's really significant especially as you get higher up the the chain um, but the thing is that the people who negotiate over the long run make a ton more money. So there was a survey that came out. Um, it's, it's not recent at this point. Um, it's several years old now, but back when I, I <laughs> was doing my own salary negotiation, um, I was reading it and it basically stated that people who don't negotiate salary miss out on an average of 500,000, $500,000 over the course of their life, which makes a lot of sense. Cause if you think about the jumps that you can make, and that's an annual salary um, that compounds quickly. And so if you're not negotiating, you're missing out on a bunch of money, uh, but it's a scary conversation, right? You, you, it's, not, it's not something we talk about every day. Uh, I think a lot of people feel like they don't have negotiation skills or they're non-confrontational or they're not good at it. And I totally understand that. So that same survey that mentioned the 500,000 bucks over, over the course of a career also did some research on what people get if they negotiate and, and kind of diving into that fear a little bit more. So they found that uh, something like 15% of people who negotiated did not get 
more than they expected. So essentially 85% of people who just decided to have the conversation about negotiation got more than they expected. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty good illustration that if you're just willing to open things up and do your research ahead of time and be prepared, you're going to get something out of it. So the best way to handle the conversation is, um, to start at the beginning, typically what's going to happen is uh, the recruiters, whoever you're talking to in the phone screen is probably not going to let you get through to the next round without some sort of number or without that conversation. It's pretty rare that that happens. And the main reason for that is because the recruiter doesn't want to waste your time, but they also don't want to waste their time and the hiring team's time. You know, you go all the way through the whole process and then you realize salaries and aligned that sucks for everybody. So typically they'll bring it up at the beginning. And this is one of the trickiest questions for people to answer because uh, I'm sure a lot of people have heard that the rule of negotiation, you know, the first person to give a number loses. And um, that's not necessarily the case. I think losing is a strong word, but I would say you're at a big disadvantage uh, because if you show up and you say, uh, let's say the recruiter, because these recruiters do have a role or a budget rather that they're given for each role. So the company says, Hey, we're hiring a project manager. We want you to try to get one for under 150 K. So if you show up and you say, I want 120 K that recruiter is going to say, great, you're in our range. Um, we'll move you along to the next round. And you know, you probably feel pretty good cause you're in the range, but you don't realize that you just left $30,000 on the table. And so you just put yourself at a big disadvantage, but also if you come out and you're way too high, that's also an issue. So what I try to do is lead with uh, non-monetary terms. So when the recruiter says, you know, well, hey, Chris, why don't you tell me a little bit about your salary expectations for this role? I typically say um, I'm, I'm flexible and I'm willing to kind of have that conversation. My number one priority is making sure that this is a fit for both of us. So I start with that. And if that gets me through, great. Um, uh, Chances are that's not going to get you through, but it's always good to lead there. If they come back and they say, well, that's nice. You know, we really want to fit too, uh, but we're going to need some sort of number or range to move forward. Then I try to spin it back on them. So I mentioned a second ago that these recruiters do have a budget that they're typically given. I just ask them if they're willing to share it. I'll say, you know, hey, would you mind sharing the, the range that you have budgeted for this role? And a lot of really good recruiters will because what they, or at least something close to it, because what they realize is that they have a, uh, most of the chips, they have a lot of the leverage. And by them sharing the number first, uh, they don't quite have as much to lose as the job seeker does. So it can actually help them get to a number that makes sense for both parties. And if you're really interested in hiring the top, the best talent out there, top talent, um, that's where you want to work to get to. Uh, unfortunately, not every recruiter does that. So uh, eventually they may say, you know, we, we, we need a number, we need range for you. So what you want to do here is at the very beginning, you want to give a range that is um, basically what's called a bolstering range. So um, there's a, a couple of researchers up at Columbia, one's named Daniel Ames, and they do a lot of research around negotiation and this sort of stuff. Uh, they came up with the term bolstering range, which is essentially a, a range that's reasonable, but it has your target salary or number on the lower end of the range. So if I wanted 120K, I could say, well, I'm looking for things in the ballpark of 118 to 135. And typically what their research found was that people were going to come in on the low end every time, but because you bolstered it, you know, that should be all right for you. Um, that's how you, you 
give the number, so to speak, but that range should really come from research. You should go hit up Glassdoor. You should go try to talk to people. Um, one of the most interesting resources out there is actually for people who are coming in with visa sponsorships, they're required, uh, the companies are required to actually disclose the salary information for people that they approve for visas or people that the government approves for visas. So if you can go find your role title at this specific company or at competitive companies, you can actually see what some of these people who have been paid. Mm. So if you combine all those things, you can pro- you can probably find a range that's realistic and you can lead with that. The only th- other thing I'd say is as the conversation progresses, as you get closer to the offer, uh, what you can do is make those numbers a little bit more specific. So if you say, hey, I'm looking for 118 to 135, kind of like we said, uh, and the company comes back and says, well, the best we can do is uh, you know 120. You can then say, okay, I just needed, you know, some time to think about it. Let me run the numbers. Then you can come back and say, you know, I, I ran the numbers, you know, I spoke with my family um, and I, I've done a lot of research uh, in the marketplace and I know uh, competitors pay X, Y, and Z and the average is Y. Um, you know, here's the number that that I really need to, to come into work and, and give everything every day. And this is where you want to uh, get specific. So the same people at Columbia found that if you use specific non-round numbers, you're, you, th- those applicants usually end up with a higher salary. So instead of 118 to 135, we may say something like, um, and, and you want to be a little bit more specific here. So we may say something like, you know, 123 and a half, something like that. Mm. Um, that typically plays well because it, it seems <laughs> more calculated. And so that's basically it. That that's how you kind of handle the the salary conversation. The only other thing I'd say is that money isn't the only thing you can negotiate. You can negotiate PTO. You can negotiate your job title. You can negotiate things like paying for commuting costs, work from home. Mm. Um, there's a lot of other non financial stuff that is really really valuable. And so I would start with the financials. But if you can't get there, you know that doesn't mean the conversation is over. I would just shift down to those non financial aspects that are important to you. Um, and see if you can find something uh, to to make up the difference there. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, that's something I didn't even realize is that there's the non-financial uh, aspects of it that you can negotiate, you know, work from home or commuter benefits is um, with that, what's your stance on employee benefits? Because I know that's usually only a couple options. Do you have leeway when it comes to negotiating those or is that kind of set in stone? Yeah, benefits are tough because the company either has a 401k or they don't, or they have, you know, two healthcare plans to choose mm-hmm. from. Um, and, you know, they're probably like, they would have to go basically sign up and buy a third if, if you wanted it. So that's going to be a bit of a deal breaker. But things like working from home um, or maybe potentially making up some of the difference in, in stock, um, paying for your cell phone or commuter costs, those are all very, very reasonable. Um, one of my favorites is, is PTO because that's essentially salary if you don't use it. And a lot of people don't use their PTO, which I don't recommend. I recommend taking all of it. Um, but either way, you know, if, if you leave that company and they have PTO, and this is why unlimited, unlimited PTO is actually a bad thing because uh, there's a lot of research that shows that people take less PTO when they have an unlimited plan. And also the company is off the hook to pay you for the vacation that you don't use. Mm. So because there's when it's unlimited, you know, there's no cap. And so they yeah. can't say like you, uh, you don't accrue vacation time or anything. Whereas if you have 20 PTO days, if you only use 15 of them and then you leave, the company owes you for the, the other five that you accrued. Um, so you can actually get paid out on that and that's equivalent to salary. So that's, that's one of my first options that I go for if, if the, the salary itself isn't there. Yeah, that's a really good point. I've, I always see all these startup companies where it's like unlimited PTO and I never <laughs> even thought about 
you don't even get paid for that if you choose to leave. That's interesting. Also, I think what's interesting with the salary negotiation is it it's definitely, I feel like, depending on your role, for example, I had a buddy who was applying for a sales consultant position. He got down to the final wire and he ended up negotiating salary and then he got the job and they're like, good. We, that was actually a test to see your negotiation <laughs> skills when it came down to it. Um, mm-hmm. And they ended up giving him the amount. So I thought that was kind of just a funny story about that, you know? That's awesome. Yeah. What, um, you know, final advice here. I know the episode's been, uh, you know, about a 50 minutes to an hour. Um, what, what would you suggest just, you know, final advice out there for people who may be looking either for, you know, a career shift or kind of just now diving into the job market? Yeah. I mean, it really comes down to two things. And I think we talked about this a little bit before, but really, if you want a job in today's market, you have to go build relationships with people. You have to go find decision makers who can influence your ability to get hired. And you have to find a way to get in front of them. And the best way to do that is to to give first, to add value. Um, Try to give as much as you can up front and that will come back in spades. The second is finding, you know, creative ways to prove out your value. Um, You know, not just relying on your resume or your cover letter, things like that, but actually, taking control a little bit and putting together something that illustrates your value on your terms, um, in your own words through medium you're comfortable with. Again, I call it a value validation project, but, uh, anything you can do to go above and beyond and really solidify that connection between your experience and what the company is looking for is going to take you a long, long way. And if you combine those things, if you find somebody who will go to bat for you and refer you in, and then you have that value validation project on top of that, sort of backing from that person. Um, that's a really, really tough combo to beat in terms of the competition out there. That's still kind of playing the same game as everybody else with the online apps and the resumes. Ah, love it. Those are such killer advice right there for sure. So two final quick questions, kind of polar opposite from each other, but (laughs) one, if you woke up tomorrow in a completely new place, you've never heard of, had no job, had to kind of start from scratch no connections was the first thing that you would do. And number two, more on a serious level, uh, how would you describe your journey towards success in one word? Uh, so for the first, do I still have the knowledge that I have today? Uh, for the first, yes, you do. You have, you have the knowledge, but not near as much. You have maybe as much as somebody who's read a couple of your articles, but that's it. Okay. Um, so I would, if I, if I don't have the knowledge I'd have today, I would, go take, take the advice that's in the article that I have on my blog. It's called how to get a job anywhere with no connections, but go make a list of target companies, go find 10 to 15 decision makers at each of those companies who are working on teams or in roles that I want and just start blasting out cold emails. Um, that'd be the first thing I do. If I had the knowledge that I have today, I would probably start creating content on LinkedIn. I would mm. think about, I would hope at that point I have some sort of skill set uh, to speak of in some, some capacity or some industry. So I just start creating content on LinkedIn um, simply because it's, I think we're moving out of the resume era and into the LinkedIn era. And there's so mm-hmm. much room for opportunity out there. And I've created so many relationships now um, through LinkedIn that I think that's an accelerator for job seekers, for entrepreneurs, for everybody. Um, so I'd probably do that, but I'm not sure I would know how to get started if I only had uh, half the knowledge or, or whatever <laughs> we're constrained sure. by. Um, so then for the second question, you know, the number one word for me is, is just consistency. Mm. So I think a lot of people, and, and this was not always the case, you know, a lot of people, they want to start something or they want to get that job at Google or whatever. 
and it's easy to get started, right? It's easy to stay motivated for those first couple of weeks. Um, but then, you know, you kind of hit those obstacles and, uh, you know, things go wrong or not as you expected, or they're harder than, than you thought they'd be. And that's really just natural. That happens to everybody, no matter what your goals are, if they are big goals, um, that's going to happen. And so the people who I see do the best, aren't the ones who are doing the eight hour marathons every Saturday, um, in terms of work, not necessarily running, but, mm-hmm. um, they're the ones who show up for 30 minutes every day, um, or an mm-hmm. hour every day. And they just kind of chip away at it. So that that's worked for me time and again, in terms of, you know, I show up and I sent five cold emails every day when I was looking for a job, or I spent half an hour researching companies every day. And then when I started a company, I spent half an hour every day writing, um, or I spend, mm-hmm. you know, half an hour a day on LinkedIn. It's small chunks every day that are going to get you to where you want to go. The people who try to do like the short bursts um, of like, again, like the eight hours uh, twice a month, that kind of thing, that just doesn't work and you're going to get burned out and it's going to be really hard to get over those obstacles. So being consistent is far and away the number one thing I see um, in common with a lot of the people that I look up to, um, you know, that I respect, that I kind of look to for inspiration that are, that are successful out there. Yeah, for sure. I've been adopting that mindset of just every day, how can I move the needle one inch forward exactly, um, rather than trying to just move it a whole foot, you know? So I think that really goes back to what you mentioned on consistency for sure. So yeah, man. Man, thank you uh, so much for, for taking the time to, uh, to do this episode. Um, I know this has been a long time in the works. I've been looking at your content all the time. Um, and as soon as I figured out remote recording, how to really get this started, I'm like, I gotta hit up Austin for this. So man, thank you so much. You got it, Chris. Um, I would have to say that this episode was pretty fire, if you ask oh, me. So, thank you, thank you. Where's um, real quick? Where's the best place everyone out there, all the listeners, can connect with you? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's on probably my site, cultivatedculture.com or on LinkedIn. Um, I'm pretty active on both places, so uh, you can find me on either one. Feel free to reach out, hit me up with questions. Um, but yeah. Uh, that's those are the two spots ah sounds good man well thanks again thank you all for taking the time to tune in to this episode i hope you loved this episode with austin i know i got a ton of value out of it as a brief reminder please take the time if you have it already to subscribe to next level minds on apple podcast and make a quick review of what you thought of this week's episode and also if you have a friend or family member who you think would you know, get some value from listening to this episode, feel free to share it with them. That would be greatly appreciated. Let's impact over 1 million people by helping them reach a next level. Let's do this together. Thank you all for taking the time to tune in and I hope you enjoy your week.